Listen to some of your favorite shows ad-free with Stitcher Premium, like Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, My Favorite Murder, Science Rules with Bill Nye, and more. Plus, get access to Stitcher Originals, bonus episodes, comedy albums, and more. Just $4.99 a month. Go to stitcher.com premium and use promo code THEWILDLIFE for one month free. And this is Richard. And you're listening to The Wildlife, a show hosted by two brothers that blend science, nature, and human connections with other wild lives across the planet. It's also episode 44 without Ryan Reynolds as a guest to compare and contrast real wolverines with Hugh Jackman's wolverine. Before we get started, um, right at the top, just want to thank our supporters, our member supporters, our patrons who support us at patreon.com slash the wildlife uh andrea lloyd megan gariani bridget fitzgerald chris trenkel and matt capel you are the life force of the show and also 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 if you are listening right now please remember to rate and review or comment and share all that stuff because it it really helps to um, boost our visibility which by the way Excited to report that currently downloads loads are up at 677% higher than average, which Woo! is pretty great. And we've gained a lot of uh, Twitter followers as of late and, you know, a whole bunch of stuff, a whole bunch of stuff. So uh, things are happening and we're pretty excited. So, uh, yeah. Now, you probably realize already without needing much introduction that this is part three, part three to a three part series about love kind of physical love not really love not the not the romantic not the the lovely romantic comedy kind of love not the Hugh Grant kind of love not the what's her name Jennifer Roberts is that is that an actress the trilogy comes to an end exactly in parts one and two we talked to <clears throat> Sebastian Ejivari and Shakira Quinones about spiders and let me tell you I have this absolute, newfound, complete enthrallment. I'm head over heels. I'm head over heels for spiders at this point. And it's funny because I kind of like, I used to hate them. And then I was kind of like, oh, yeah, okay, cool, whatever. Like, I don't really mind. Oh, some of them are kind of pretty. Oh, some of them are kind of cute now, actually. And now I'm just like, have you seen this thing? Look at how cute it is. It's still. I even spent like a solid... You you can shut up. I spent this. I mean, no one wants solid... them on them. Okay, I honestly don't think that I would mind all that much. Oh, Richard, we talked about this in parts one and two. We had a whole a whole. We have talked about this. Do not make me treat you again. Okay. Uh. Treat. It's a it's a it's a term that the youth are using. <laughs> I picked up on it. I don't know, man. I guess it's just the Yankee youth. 
I don't know. I don't know. I mean, how much time do you spend around youth? I mean, I do because I'm a I teacher. I mean, I spend but, like... way too much time on iFunny. Like, probably okay. a solid hour a day at well, least. That's because you're the meme generation. You're a bunch of, bunch of meme kids. Whatever y'all are doing. I don't even know. I really need What to generation are you? You're the one right after millennial, it's right? It's like, depending, it like depends on what graph you look at. It's a right... I'm, like, right on the cusp of, like, Millennial and Gen Z. It's weird. Ah, so you're... Oh, man, so you're in the weird... You're in the weird part. You're in the part where it's funny to joke about depression, but also you just have, like, jokes that don't make any sense whatsoever and lack complete context like, because I'm, it's I'm just, like, a weird... I'm Gen Z, but all my friends are Millennials, and anytime you see those posts of, like, uh huh, huh Gen Z childhood, I'm like, I don't know, dude. I, I didn't act... I wasn't involved in any of that. I didn't have any you're of those just, toys or consoles or watch those you're shows. You're also just a weird kid, though. What? You're also just a weird kid, though. Well, you I mean, just, like, you played Halo all the time. This, yeah, it's just because it was all replaced by Halo. I don't know anyone on this planet who can just sit there and recite Halo like you do. I mean, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hours will do that to you. So, um, on a completely different note from Halo... But not so different from spiders. Now, here's the thing. Our focus of today is not on spiders. We're switching gears, but we're also staying on theme, staying on topic with the whole tainted love idea uh, on flipping the script of animals that people hate and, in fact, love to hate. And instead of a creature with eight legs, where we're cutting off all of the legs and then and then wringing them out like like a big piece of play-doh we're, t- we're talking snakes snakes today but they did pretty excited have legs. They, they did used to have legs and we'll talk about that they used to have a few different things that they don't have anymore which is mildly upsetting and and kind of just like poor guys shoot i feel bad for you man but we're talking about snakes because like like we said a big part of this whole point here is to talk about things that people hate people love to hate people are afraid of and hopefully maybe convince you that they're worth that they're worth loving just a little bit so in our focus on snakes for today we're going to talk about a lot of different stuff of course we're still talking about the sexy bits the snake sex right but we are also just talking about some general garter snake biology and pheromones and hormones and venom the versus background. poison and a double penis and snake pits and skiing down a river to a four-door canoe. How many pancakes does it take to make a doghouse? And, and, and a bunch of different stuff. And even some hints at future episodes just because for some reason life has been serendipitous. And our guest for the day is Dr. Robert T. Mason. Who better than a man who literally met his wife in a snake pit? Most romantic thing I've ever heard of in my life. We're literally not kidding, by the way. He met his wife in a snake pit. I literally met my wife in a snake pit. Robert T. Mason is a professor of integrative biology at Oregon State University. He got his bachelor's at the College of the Holy Cross in 1982, PhD at the University of Texas at Austin in 1987, and did his postdoc at the Laboratory of Biophysical Chemistry at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute 
and the National Institutes of Health from 1987 to 1991. He also runs the Mason Lab at Oregon State University, which, when we sat down to talk to him, is where he was talking to us from his office at OSU. And in talking to him, I, I, I have to say, I feel like we were sort of in the graces of a celebrity here. Don't you? <laughs> I mean, and Dr. Robert C. Um, Mason. And yeah, uh, he's, he's got his uh, children's book, uh, The Snake Scientist. That's about uh, him and his uh, studies. I just have to say, it was, it was honestly kind of adorable. He, he got up, he like got up during the interview, moseyed on over to a bookshelf, and he just had it sitting there, like straight on his bookshelf. And then he very proudly showed us and flipped through a couple of pages. And I was really genuinely kind of hoping that he would just read us a few pages, but then he didn't, and my heart was slightly broken. He was also on The Sopranos. <laughs> so it turns out that the guys, you know, Tony is talking to Polly Walnuts, mm -hmm. the guy, and they're in like the clubhouse there, their, their hangout. Yeah. And in between like trying to rub out Tony or something like that, the, the TV is on in the background and the camera's kind of like they're talking on the couch and the, it's kind of, sure. and you can see all this garter snakes on the TV. And then you hear this boring, my boring mom, hey, <laughs> we're in a mating ball. So he didn't get any credit or anything, but he did get some street cred. And Dr. Robert T. Mason was the unwitting inspiration behind one of the greatest films of all time, at least according to my wife, not according to me. I would never. Samuel L. Jackson's Snakes on a Plane. I still haven't seen it. It's you're you're not missing a whole bunch. It's it's a plane and there are snakes on it. Yeah. I but mean, then I like figured. the snakes attack people. And there's a lot of Samuel L. Jackson. I'm fairly certain just being himself. I don't know that they gave him a script. I think that he was just walking around the plane talking to the snakes. So. Now, now, now there's a big plot hole in Snakes on a Plane. As if that isn't already abundantly clear just by the movie itself and all the ridiculousness of it. Um, in fact, I think like at one point they put a snake in a microwave, but anyway, anyway, oh there's a really big plot hole in the movie that we're just not ready to talk about quite yet because it, um, will reveal too much about a later point in the episode, but we'll get there. I promise. But as always, when we start these conversations, we like to talk about a few basic things, right? Who you are, where you're from what you did, as long as you love me. We like to ask why. Like, why do you do what you do? What keeps you motivated? What What's so interesting? Why do you care? Now, remember, we're, we're doing this episode to try to convince you to care. So, of course, we have to talk to somebody who cares a lot. But why does he? I mean, have you always loved snakes? Is that something that was always something where you knew that you were going to go down that path? Or is that something that cropped up later on? Uh, well, the truth always hurts because, you know, most yeah. of the time I meet people who say like, I've been a snake freak, you know, since I was four. I would say I'm probably like you guys are, I suspect. Uh, I was really more of a sort of a, a generalist natural history guy. I was mm -hmm. always, when I was a kid, I was always out playing in the woods or the ponds, falling into ponds. I grew up in New England. So I was always catching frogs and snakes and turtles and bugs and yeah. whatever. I think it's fair to say that snakes are frequently 
the subject of, of, of a lot of misguided fear. Oh, definitely. Is, They're and treated... that's not to say that they don't cause any problem at all, but it seems no, no, to be no, no, quite no. hyped up, just like with the spider situation. Exactly. That being said... Um, There's a lot of misperceptions about yeah. that fear of snake, because a lot of people will say, even general purpose people say, well, you know, that's an innate fear we have of snakes, and that's actually false. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people either are or they aren't, and, and people that are, I'm very sensitive to that, because, of course, I'm working with them, and they may come up, and even yeah. when people are just really have a fear they have this sort of it's like looking at a car accident i hate to say it they're like oh my god they freak me out but then you're just like they're like glued into the you know they're looking at the cage or they're coming up like oh i hate these things but oh my god that's fascinating <laughs> look what it's doing what it comes from actually is primate stuff they've done studies on that and they actually have, have psychology studies too but anyway they'll show that they, the young monkeys will go and like pick up or try to pick up some snake that may be a deadly snake, and their mother, usually it's almost always, the mother has to scold them and teach them that that's, ah. not, that's not the right thing to do. We, we, got, we got into this conversation uh, on part one with Sebastian talking about uh, whether or not fear of spiders was an innate thing. I don't remember if we included that in the episode or not, um, but it was part of the interview. And we had talked about, right, is fear of spiders innate? Is it this natural thing that you're born with? And we basically came down to no. And it's the same thing on snakes. And see, in my own personal experience, I could have told you the exact same thing there that Dr. Mason is telling you. Uh, when I, when I uh, 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 led hikes and things at Armand Bayou Nature Center in Houston, Texas, um, there would be times where I'd be leading kids on the trail. And you're walking down the trail and you're trying to remain vigilant and watch your surroundings. And then up in front of you, crossing the trail, you see the the excellent camouflage of a copperhead just kind of sitting smack in the middle of the trail. And so you stop and you, you hold your arms out and you say, hey, kids, there's a copperhead up on the trail. Let's stay back. And these are young kids, like sometimes, you know, three to six years old. And you know what they do? They book it. They run straight at the snake because they just want to see the snake. Now, if fear of snakes was innate, there's something wrong with every single one of those kids. And it wasn't just there that I've seen that before. I've done it. I've seen other people do it. If fear of snakes was innate, you wouldn't run to that danger. Fear of snakes is learned. It's a cultural thing. You can look all around the world. And you can see some cultures who absolutely love snakes. They're infatuated by them. You can see some cultures that are fearful of snakes. It is a learned thing. So with that being said, you can help your kids or other kids or other people learn to not be afraid of snakes. Now that we've got that cleared up, we can uh, start to get into Dr. Mason's specific study animal, which is the, uh, the red-sided garter snake, amongst several other kinds, um, and, and start to get into the business of looking at the... Um, you know, the sexier side of things, right? But first, we're going on a break. The Wildlife has joined forces with Hike Hoppers, a central Minnesotan nonprofit whose vision we share to connect people to nature through hiking events and educational learning experiences. On the second Saturday of each month, join Devin at a Stearns County, Minnesotan park for a hike, each one with a different theme, like the social network of trees, 
beavers, and dragonflies, and more. Learn more at thewildlife.blog or on hikehoppers.org. Hello, this is Chelsea, teacher who hikes, and this week's hiking tip is kind of about where you look while you hike. Now, if you're like my husband, the one you're listening to, Devin, what you do is you probably focus more on the, the trees up, what you're looking at, because he's a bird guy, right? And he's looking up at where the sounds are coming from. I'm the opposite. I tend to look down while I walk. It is not even for like a real reason other than I'm like somebody who trips more often than I should. So I'm always watching for things to trip on. So what do I see more often? Snakes, frogs, bugs, things like that. What does he see more often? Birds, uh, mammals, different things that are in the more up side of you, right? And I mean, it makes more sense that way. Also, he's just better at finding them. Um, so I guess my hiking tip is to maybe on your next hike, try to look the other way that you don't normally look. Be mindful of where you're looking and then see if you can spot some other stuff by looking in different directions, right? So I look up a little more while I hike. Maybe I'll see something and yeah, Devin can look down a little more. He's actually getting a lot better at it. Like the one time he started doing that, he spotted a Dobson fly, which if you don't know what those are, please go look them up because it was the most terrifying thing I think I've ever seen in my entire life. Okay, we are back and I gotta say, I, I've been feeling, um, I've been feeling an urge, Richard. I've been feeling an urge, mm-hmm. feeling an urge to, uh, I, th- I think, I think I need a moment because as we're talking about this whole fear of snakes thing, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's been, it's been, um, um, bringing up a lot of different thoughts and things and feelings. And I think it's time from, for nobody listens to Devin, uh, you know, in part two, maybe it was part two. Yeah, it was part two. I said something. I said something about stop killing spiders, right? You know what? Stop killing snakes too. Come on, what the heck's up with that? They don't even have arms. What are they supposed to do? They can't, like they can't even like they can't even hold their arms up in front of their face to be like ah, don't hit me with that shovel, and you're gonna hit it. It's a noodle. You're gonna hit a noodle. Or shoot a noodle or chop a noodle or whatever the heck people are doing to a big old noodle. Yeah, some of them got some pointy teeth and whatnot. But leave them alone. Oh, I'm sorry. Would you prefer to have rats running all over the place? Would you prefer would you prefer pest and what some people call vermin to, to be all over your yard and up in your bizzle? Come on. Why you gotta kill a snake? And you know what the most annoying part is? All the people were like, I kill any snake I say. Okay, and why? Because it's a snake. Get over yourself. Well, I'm sorry that I'm sorry that you 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 like so desperately need to feel powerful that you've got to go outside and, and and just like whip the crap out of some snake you see on the ground, swinging it over your head like some kind of lasso. Chill out. It's a snake. Also, not all snakes are venomous, and especially not all snakes are gonna bite bite you, especially if they're not provoked. So how about you don't go out there provoking them? Just leave them alone. If you see a snake, you know what? It's probably just moseying on its way. It's probably it's probably on a date. It's probably trying to do whatever it's trying to do. But you don't need to be going out and just like, oh, I saw a snake, so I gotta go kill that thing quick. No, just leave it alone. I really don't know what else to say because, like, for I'll be I'll be really honest right now. This is one of those subjects where it oof, whoo, really puts me on edge. Because it's just so needless, so pointless. You have arms, you've got legs, walk away. 
okay? Just walk away. Chill. I like what you did there. But as we know, more than more than often, nobody listens to Devin. But Richard, who do they listen to? An expert. So before the break, we said uh, we were going to be getting into the sexy time. But before we get into snake sexy time, we want to understand who they are, right? We want to know what makes them tick. Do they like long walks on the beach? Do they like going to movies? Chinese food? Korean? Do they like going out for Mexican food? Are they more like a wing kind of gal? Who knows? That's what we need to know. So we're going to get to know them. Garter snakes, that is. Actually, as it turns out, I thought there was like two or three. Turns out there's 35 species. Like 35 species. Yeah, that garter threw snake. me for a loop as well. And also, garter snake, you've probably heard so many different names. It's G-A-R-T-E-R. Garter. Like, like the little things that people used to wear back in the day. In fact, back in the day, what people did, and this is actually why they're called garter snakes, is uh, they, they would have them bite onto their pant leg and then tie the tail around their shoe to keep their pant legs down. What? <laughs> totally made that up. Okay. No, they didn't actually do that, clearly. Um, but, but they are called garter snakes because of those bands that kind of run down their body that give them that kind of garden hose kind of look, which is another reason that people call them garden and get garter and garden all mixed up. That's what it comes from. Garters. Now, Robert's lab primarily focuses on the red-sided garter snake. Snake? Red-sided garter snakes are the ones that, that are up there in Manitoba. Okay. You guys have them in Minnesota, so they'll go mm -hmm. all the way through Minnesota. Uh, there's a reason for that, but we'll get to that. But yeah, so that's the main one. We do, we do comparative work. There's okay. another one in uh, south, probably more like southwestern or western Minnesota that are, that are the plains garter snakes. Ah, sure. And so that, that one. I don't know if in eastern Minnesota, you might have another species, but at any rate, um, there's those, we, we often do compare contrast things. So even though mm -hmm. they're both garter snakes, they're actually, it's very interesting. And this, this isn't even the geek stuff. They're very different critters. Now, the thing about garter snakes in particular is their affinity for an association with pits, mosh pits, brad pits, nectarine pits, armpits, which they are incredibly envious of considering they've got no arms. Now, I've seen videos and things before of what these snake pits look like, but they really do not do them justice. Yeah, they they're they're bigger than what you what you'd expect, or at least more populated. And then when people say, "Well, why do you you know why do you study snakes?" and then why do you go all the way to Manitoba because we have lots of snakes here in in Oregon. And I mm -hmm. always say, "Well, if you're going to study migration, you want to go where a lot of things are migrating. If you want to go." look at feeding, you go look at where a lot of critters are feeding. So if you were interested in reproduction, you got to go where there's a lot of critters reproducing. Yeah. So yeah. Far and away, those big giant snake dens up in Manitoba have more, you know, I can see, I, I've probably seen, even for me, that's kind of an expert down here and gets out a lot. I've probably seen maybe a couple dozen garter snakes mate down here in Oregon in mm -hmm. 25 years. Sure. I can see... 500 matings in one day up in Manitoba. So we had to ask Dr. Mason, what is it like to be standing directly next to one? What does it feel like, smell like, look like, taste like? 
what's it like when you first see it? It is kind of cool. The one thing I think is neat about that is, you know, snakes don't, don't, uh, snakes don't vocalize. You know, some snakes mm -hmm. hiss and rattlesnakes can rattle and stuff like that, but no snake kind of talk. They don't have a yeah. language things like that. But when you go up to those snakes in the spring and you're, you're just coming to a new den, you hear them before you see them. And what you're hearing is those thousands of snakes rubbing the across scales. each other's body. Yeah. It makes like a rustling sound. It's it's a very it's a very uh, ethereal. I don't know. It's a it's not creepy. It's not weird, but it's a very odd. You know, mm. like you've never heard any sound like that before, and it's not super loud. You're just like, that's weird. I'm hearing it's almost like rustling leaves. But it's neat. Oh, okay. Around, you know, and you get a search image. Yeah. Like, Here's a snake, and then you kind of look like, oh my god, there's like thousands of snakes. Like, holy cow! So yeah, I love to see people when they first see the dens for the first time. It just, it just, they're gobsmacked. Now these snake pits, they can be huge. We're talking seventy-five thousand in an area that's the size of the average living room. Seventy-five thousand. Imagine walking into your living room right now, and there are seventy-five thousand. Thick little noodles. All just writhing Thick, around just in a writhing. giant mass. Writhing around like, like just writhing all over the place. Twisting like, in big old knots. It. it looks like some dad went to Home Depot and then came home and and then like the mom or the wife or whatever gets home and it's like, what did you do? And he's like, I bought the longest water hose they had. But then I got it all tangled. Oh no, what do I do? And it's just like sitting in the middle of the living room. Except this is snakes. And they're all scaly. And they look like big, thick noodle things. You get the point. How many times are you going to say noodle? Noodle. Mm. Like I'm dead serious. Like this is, this is really difficult to try and tell you what. Of course, in our episode notes, if you're looking, we will put... A, a clip of what one of these looks like but here's the thing i mean it's cool and all but what the hell why why seventy-five thousand noodle freaks in a big pit what are you doing in a pit get out the pit what are you doing why i mean that's that's that a lot what are you doing compact what are you doing get out of the pit what are you doing in the pit We'll tell you what they're doing in the pit right after this break. Wildlife is building a community on iNaturalist with a new joinable project. Connect with a community of over 750,000 scientists and naturalists who can help you learn more about nature and help confirm identifications. By recording and sharing your observations, you help to create quality research data for scientists working to better understand and protect nature iNaturalist is a joint initiative by the California Academy of Sciences and the National Geographic Society. For details on how to join our project and connect with other listeners, visit thewildlife.blog slash iNaturalist. Where we left off, okay, 75,000 snakes in a pit the size of a living room. What are you doing in a pit? I don't know. You tell me. Well, actually, we're going to tell you. Do these, are, are these pits specifically for the purpose of reproduction or do they start as like a, a, a hibernation like as a hibernacula and then uh the secondary purposes like later on in the spring they are the reproductive site or is it uh, two separate things so the answer is as my as my snarky colleague would say the answer is yes it has a lot to do with geology 
actually. The snakes are in the pit because the pit exists. You, you feel me? <laughs> it's, such, it's such a meta statement. I know, right? Like, <laughs> the pit exists, therefore the snakes snack. You get what I'm saying? The nope ropes are dope because the hole is all yope. Devin, you're trying way too hard. Because <laughs> the hole is ope. Well, why is the hole ope? That's the real question. To understand why the snakes be like they do, you have to go way back in time. Well, not super far back in time, but you gotta, you gotta go back in time a bit. And you've gotta understand geological history because these pits are all across Manitoba. All over Manitoba. the place. Up in Canada, right? Now, a long time ago, there was glaciers. All of North America, the whole middle of North America was the great inland sea, you know, Lake Eggs. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. you know that uh, then the glaciers came and uh, scraped it all flat. So up in Minnesota, you know about that. And up in Manitoba, it's just flat as a pancake. And as I always say, Minnesota is the land of 10,000 lakes. Well, Manitoba's got to be the land of 100,000 lakes. The place is just wet. The, the bedrock in many of the locations around here is, is, is 10 feet, sometimes less. It's, it's almost exactly like when you go on uh, uh, Creative Mode or if you create a, a flat world on Minecraft and then you dig down, you can only go down so many blocks. It's like, what, 10 blocks? And then it's bedrock. Like, it's, it's literally that is literally that. That's Manitoba, except with a bunch of holes all over the place. Now, why holes? Well, because that bedrock, it's limestone. And if you know anything about limestone, anything about caves, if you live in an area where you've got a lot of hard water and limestone in the area, is that limestone erodes. When water gets into limestone, especially if it gets into limestone and freezes, and then unfreezes, and then freezes, and then unfreezes, and then freezes, over and over and over again it starts to form cracks and when it forms cracks those cracks get a little bit bigger a little bit bigger and then over time now you don't have a crack you've got a hole and then and then and then this is sounding slightly funny but then you know a little fast forward fast forward just a little bit into the future and now that hole is is like a pothole and then a little bit more into the future you've got some water you've got some freezing and thawing and freezing and thawing and now you've got this big pool in the ground and then it dries out and then you've got or freezing and thawing and freezing and thawing and freezing and thawing. And then you've got this, you know, this pothole the size of a living room. So in the summertime, it's a great place to be a garter snake because there's just, there's all that standing water and where there's standing water, there's frogs, there's fish and minnows, things, tadpoles, mm -hmm. and they just love to eat that stuff. So that's great. So it's super duper in the summertime. Great. Except for that one problem is it the winter is bloody cold and long. Like we're talking cold to where the difference between Fahrenheit and Celsius really doesn't matter anymore because it's just cold. I'm in, I'm in Minnesota. I honestly feel like if it's below 20, I really don't care what the temperature is. It all feels the same to me. Your face hurts. Liquid instantly freezes to your face. Yeah. When you breathe in through your nose, it kind of just automatically dries out and does this kind of weird, like, I don't really know how to describe it, but it feels hard inside of your nose. Like, it all feels the same. Who cares? The point is, it gets super, super cold. Snakes. What do we know about snakes in relation to warmth and cold? They're cold-blooded. 
They're cold-blooded. They can't be like we and just heat themselves up. They've got to actively do something with their behavior to go heat themselves up. Like, for example, scuttle up into the sun and bathe in it for a while. Now, you might be going, ah, I finally understand why the snack be snack and you're holding your fingers up to your head like you just had some kind of like major revelation. And that is, they are gathering together to warm each other up. No, they're cold-blooded. They can't warm each other up. They're just the temperature of the environment. That's what they do. However, they do go to those pits for the winter. It's called a hibernacula. It's, it's their hibernation zone. It's sort of like a bear going into a cave. Altogether, has nothing to do with keeping each other warm. It's because the hole is there. The nearest hole. And so are they. It's just the nearest hole. It's almost like a funnel. Think about it's it. It's like people at a like bus stop. Like a black stop. hole. Yeah. They're not there to hang out. They're just all there to get on the bus. It's like a, a McDonald's right off the highway. Really, no one wanted to eat there. It's just there. It's where everyone gathers. <laughs> <laughs> just You pull off, you stop, you go pee, get some coffee or whatever. And you turn around, there's like 17 old people all reading the newspaper. And it turns out that they have known each other and been doing this for 20 years. At 6 o'clock in the morning. You're just all there. No reason. And some of them will work for a hibernaculum and some will not. And so what's the difference is they have to get below the frost line. So if it's a relatively shallow one and it's not below the frost line, that's no good because you're going to go in there and you're going to freeze. So they have to be about three meters deep, about 10 feet deep. Anyway, yeah, okay. So the snakes are in the hole because the hole is there and snakes have been around for a very long time and have figured out, hey, guess what? This is how I survive, especially in a place like this. Now in the springtime, relatively soon actually, for north, north temperate vertebrates, um, the males usually arrive on the breeding grounds first. So the male yeah. birds, yep. The male yep. birds come, they scout out, they start building a nest. The females come, they tear the nest out and put it, start <laughs> building a proper nest. And then the frogs, you know, the males call, whatever. Well, the snake, yeah. same thing. Now the ladies, when they wake up, have you ever woken up on a really cold morning and you just can't move? Like your whole body's super rigid? Uh, that's been me just for the past couple of weeks. <laughs> It's me literally every morning of my life, and I have to, like, crack every joint in my entire body. Well, I don't really know about snakes and joints, but the, the ladies, they come, they come out later, okay? Now, imagine that when you crawled out of bed, all cold and rigid, and you just need some coffee, you just want to warm up, you're really hungry, and you open the door into your living room, and there are 75,000 dudes just waiting for you to come out that's what these ladies have to go through they have to worm their way through a whole pit of dudes where normally normally in the population the ratio of males to females is about 50 percent, as you would expect that's just a simple numbers game you've got two possible uh sexes in 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 garter snakes and therefore you are going to be basically a 50 50 split now at this point though based on the rate of emerging from females and the fact that, you know, they haven't gotten pregnant basically yet. Um, so that at any time in the, uh, in the spring, 
the the what what's called the effective sex ratio can be a thousand to one. A thousand dudes for every lady. So of course competition is going to be a bit crazy. Well, wait, wait, wait. So she's got a. Yeah. So if the males leave first, then why are there so many more males? Well, the males don't leave. Leave. They just kind of come to the surface of the pit and they wait for all the ladies to wake up. Oh. It's kind of creepy. They're cold and sluggish. You can imagine what it's like when we get out of bed. Oh, yeah. If you slept yeah. for eight months, you'd be, pretty, <laughs> you'd be pretty, you know, pretty, you know, crotchety and whatever. Like, oh, you can barely move. And so the males are nice and warm. They've come out earlier. Uh, they're right. mostly like a black, it's like a black body in physics. They're really good at absorbing that heat. So even if the air temperature is cold, they really absorb heat really mm -hmm. well. And so they're zippy and stuff. So they will, the males in having these big mating balls, up to a hundred males trying to court and mate with one female, they'll kind of, it's kind of nasty, but they're down at the bottom of the den and they'll, they'll just keep dragging the female down. And the, and what they do is just, they surround her and they keep doing this chin rubbing where if this, you know, if this, where am I going this way? If this is the female, they rub up and down. They're rubbing and chin rubbing, we call it, up and down on the female. It's, it's disturbing. The animal kingdom is honestly a bit of a creeper place, okay? Like, they need to chill. It's a little uncomfortable. They really have a one-track mind. Uh, they're just, in the springtime, they're just mating. And so that's actually an adaptive thing, because you can imagine if you have 75,000 snakes in the size of your living room, <laughs> that you would need... I don't know, you know, you'd need a thousand, you know, Burger Kings in there to, to service all those snakes. Right. So you can't eat because otherwise any frog or worm that kind of went through near that, they would just be, you know, they would wipe everything out. Right. And so they don't eat. But that's actually not unusual. So, you know, the the, the one, the exaggerated, when you hear about all this, is like the poor male penguins, you know, the emperor penguins yep. on the ice. And they yep. don't eat, and they just barely make it until the females come back. So this idea of, <laughs> of being, they actually even call it being anorexic or aphagic during the breeding season, people think is remarkable, but it's really not. So again, mm -hmm. birds on nests, uh, you know, the frogs, those frogs are just calling in the springtime. They're just calling. They're not eating. It's early, yeah. early spring. There's, you know, there's no bugs out anyway. So they're, you know, they're all aphagic. So they're working on stored fat. Anyway, so the ladies, they have to they have to try to get through all of the guys, sort of like an obstacle course. I feel like it'd be it'd be like participating in wipeout. Like you've got all these weird noodle things flopping and hitting you in the face. And they're like rubbing their chin and like rubbing their bodies along her body to be like, hey, but they're like over the top about it, overly aggressive and like wrapping their bodies around her body, making pretzels and wetzels and all kinds of weird stuff. And eventually, she's going to get really agitated. It it induces a a defensive response in the female, as one would expect. If you've ever picked up a garter snake, you know that when they get agitated, they kind of release this kind of weird stink. We call it schwees. We made that we made that word up, but it's actually in the literature. <laughs> as it turns out, that's their cloacal fluids. Yeah, remember Yay. cloaca means sewer, like literally sewer. So they, they, they release a whole bunch of cloacal fluids. Now they lift their tail, open their cloaca, and squirt this goo out, and it stinks. Now, this kind of thing is precisely why we want to 
avoid personification when we can. Um, don't personify that. See, that's the kind of thing that you get it on. And if you pick one up, they rub it on your hands and stuff. And it's yeah. real stinky. So you can imagine if it smells that bad, what it tastes like. So if you're a predator, ah. most predators find us garter snake on his way, you know, getting away from you. So you grab it by the tail. They squirt that in your mouth. Blah, yeah. You're going to go, ah, you drop it and they get away. Here's the kicker. The males are doing this on purpose. They agitate her so that she will release that because guess what? If it's cloacal fluid, guess what she just had to open? The cloaca. Her cloaca, which gives them the opportunity to do what? Reproduce. Reproduce. It's messed up. I'm telling you. Animal Kingdom, chill out. So that's good for the male, right? They're like, yeah. okay, that's good for me. But what does the female get out of it? No, this whole thing, I mean, it really does sound genuinely aggressive. And there are, I mean, a whole bunch, I mean, like more than a handful of different ways that the males and the females and the males and the males and the females and the females, and then inside of the females, there there's competition going on in just insanely intricate and complicated ways that it just boggles the mind how they how they came about so the male leaves this thing called a copulatory plug it's about the consistency of like rubber cement the size of a pencil eraser and it's mostly sperm and stuff but it's supposed to well clog her cloaca you know to keep her from being able to reproduce with another male well she's got a trick up her sleeves well if, if she had any sleeves Still, she's got a trick. So what's going on is the female, uh, when the male mates with the female, she still has the, and he puts that copulatory plug in, in or inserts that plug into her, she mm -hmm. becomes transiently unattractive. She still has <laughs> talked about the pheromone yet. She, she still produces the attractiveness pheromone, but now she has another mated pheromone. Says, oh, I'm mated. So the males will come up, give her a snip up. Oh, that one's no good. Forget it. So, and then she can get, away. <laughs> she can get out of the den and then get up onto the surface of the den and not be, not get dragged down by those thousands of males. She can get away. And exercise her choice. Once she gets out and gets to the surface, then she can exercise choice. She can let that copulatory plug dissolve, pick a large, successful attractive male to form a mating ball with and even still it's not even it's not even the second mating it's the fact that the females somehow have this um it's called a cryptic female choice somehow have this ability to choose which sperm they will allow to fertilize their eggs it's almost like and i'm gonna regret this immediately like a sperm vending machine. Pick C9, please. And if you think that the competition ends there, haha, <laughs> you are mistaken. Because even the male sperm competes on the inside of the female's body. In her cloacal canals, the male sperm can compete. There's like blockers and, and, and goopers and speeders and all kinds of oddly named spermy dudes. If, if she mates with different males like how how does that work then is it fertilizing different eggs or, or so they, 
can she divert and say like, oh, I don't want this sperm? Yep. But, and so, the, so then the answer is, so now we're inside the female's tract. Yeah. Now we got another sexual conflict going on there. Now mm -hmm. we have, and so how we know this is, so if it was just a big giant cement mixer and there, we just had the two males, you'd yeah. get half of them would be this guy and half of them would be that guy, right? Right. We have everything from zero for this guy at 100% to this guy and everything. Oh, wow. And so now though, there's still the conflict. So it looks like the female is able to skew things towards one male or the other based on what criteria we're not really sure. So for instance, we could do ones where we vasectomized males. So mm -hmm. we gave them a vasectomy. They could still make a copulatory plug, but it didn't have any sperm in it. The females could tell that that was a bum mating, and then they would mate with another male. Oh, come on. How does, so, okay, so I, I'm thinking about like, okay, like a duck. Ducks. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. Female duck has a, a chambered opening. Yeah. And so they can close off like like a dam. Yep. Like they can shut yep. the gates of certain spots and only allow males into the ones with dead ends if that's not right. the male that they want to pick. Yeah. How does a snake internally, once it is mated multiple times, yeah. say? Uh, we don't know all the answers. They, they don't have quite that. The, the snakes don't have that um, advanced of a reproductive tract like the ducks. Mm -hmm. And you described it perfectly. Like they can just send them up there like, okay, buddy, you're going the wrong way. So in our case, they're not that sophisticated. And and the 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 unsatisfying answer is we don't know the answer yet, Devin. We're still doing those experiments. Oh, also, we haven't talked about this yet. Snakes have a double penis. It's called a hemipene, which is a little confusing because hemi means half. They don't have half penis. They, they've got a double penis. Quite the opposite. Yeah. Now you might be wondering, why do snakes have a double penis? What's up with that? You weren't as clever as me, who asked the right question. Darn, you stole my thunder. <laughs> People usually ask, Devin, they say, okay, well, why do snakes have two? And my smart aleck answer is, that's not the question. The question should be, why do mammals only have one? And so the, the, the real answer is not as, not, as, uh, not as satisfying as you might think. So really... Um, it's because snakes and birds, things like that, don't have mm -hmm. a bladder, a urinary bladder. So, you know, with us, we have, it's really just this bilateral symmetry. So if we're just talking males, you know, you got a right testis and a left testis, and you got a mm -hmm. right vas deferens and a left vas deferens. And in a right. mammal, they fuse with the urethra, which is also the exit for the urine. Mm -hmm. Well, the snakes don't have that. So really, you just have right testis, left testis, right vas deferens, left vas deferens, right hemipene, left hemipene. Okay. You don't need to have that fused one. You have everything is just bilateral like that. And sure. it's just It's just a copulatory organ. So then I say they are kind of like a two-shot Derringer. So, <laughs> and that's fun because we had a fun paper, which I, which I love. One of my best ones was, was uh, Handedness and Snakes. And so this is another fun one. Yep. So you're like, okay, what's going on yeah. there? Obviously, they don't have hands, but they do have one set of paired organs that they can they have to choose which one to use. And so, are you with me? So when they yeah. mate, they only mate with one hemipene. Really? When they yep. So they only use, so they have two, but then when they mate, they are 
they are right-handed. Snakes are right-handed because they choose to use their right hemipene more often than their left hemipene for the first mating. So they can choose which one to use. Both of them are equally effective. And it, and it was funny because it matches the handedness. This turns out, this goes way back into ancient times. Whenever people look at wacky things like this, it turns out that right-handedness is oh, an ancient man. trait that goes all the way up. To okay, the that's wacky. Now, it really does boggle the mind. I mean, you, you look at all these, uh, these different forms of competition that are happening between the males and the females and the females and the males and the males and the males and inside of the female and all of that stuff that we've already talked about. There is one more piece of this whole thing that I, I just needed an answer to because it, it was a question that just was sitting on my mind in the back of my head the entire time we were talking. Now, if you're a snake and you're basically in a giant pit of wet spaghetti. How do you communicate? You don't have hands. As you said, they don't have ears. They can't wink at each other because they don't have eyelids. I mean, they lost their hands largely because, well, they, they one time had them and became morphosorial and burrowers and things like that and no longer really needed them. There's no thumbs up. There's no hand signals. There's no vocalizations. So how do you communicate? The answer, it's all in the pheromones. That's the most ancient of our of our senses. So people think, oh, it must be ears or, or ears or eyes or whatever. But um, even bacteria communicate with chemical signals. And if you're wondering what a pheromone is, do you know what hormones are? Of I mean, course. You've probably experienced hormones and, and the results of hormones, right? Every, we've all been through puberty, correct? Maybe someone out there who's listening has not, and I don't know if you should be listening to this episode. There's a lot of sexy talk. But anyway, hormones are internal cell-to-cell communication in our bodies. Pheromones are basically hormones, but it's how uh, a snake is communicating with another snake. Now, Dr. Mason asked us this question that he says that he asked a lot of his students, and we thought we would pose it to you. Which came first? That's a good, that's a good one. So there's a, there's a fun one. This is what I often ask on a prelim question to grad students is, mm -hmm. which came first, hormones or pheromones? And so most people think, oh, pheromones are very specialized, you know, yeah. signals, whatever. But almost certainly pheromones came first, and I can't keep credit for that because a very famous biologist, J.B.S. Haldane, Haldane's rule and so forth in, in genetics, um, he said, oh, it, all, it, it certainly had to be pheromones because if we go all the way back to the primordial soup, mm -hmm. finally got you know, these little one-set critters oh. like this, right? Yeah. They were all just independent things. Then the next thing we got was colonial things, sort of like sponges and whatever well the first thing they had to do is these two cells these two organisms had to communicate with each mm -hmm. other so communication by chemical signals between one individual and another is 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 pheromonal communication or chemical signaling hormones are signaling between two cells within your own body okay so, uh, okay so a hormone is really is a specialized a case of a chemical signal, a pheromone is a chemical signal between two individuals out in the environment. 
A hormone mm. is communication between two cells within an organism. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. So that's really why cool this Haldane that. just kind of answers itself. What's yeah. that? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun one. But Haldane actually figured this out back in the 30s. But that's I always say I I asked that as a grad a grad student in their prelim exams because they almost always get it wrong and then I I make them go through this logic puzzle themselves and I'm like yeah I want to change my answer like, <laughs> that's a good idea that's a yeah. good, good choice to change that but at any rate um, so that's your ferrum yeah ferrum so technically I'll say it technically because. <clears throat> it makes sense to you guys or will makes is a pheromone is a chemical signal mm -hmm. um, that's uh, produced by one individual that affects the physiology or the and or the behavior of a conspecific. So what I mean by that is pheromones between snakes work with but the flower scent uh, that attracts a bee is not a pheromone. It's a chemical signal, right? But a flower is not a bee. So the sure. bee is attracted to the, to the scent of the flower, but that's not a pheromone. Yeah, yeah. You know, lots of pheromone, like the queen pheromone that we talked about there. Mm -hmm. that, that's affecting other bees. So there's lots of chemical signaling, but pheromones are a special case only between. So when the dog uh, sniffs the fire hydrant, when you take the dog out for a walk, that's all pheromones. Everybody has asked the age-old, why can't the damn dog just pee on, it's the middle of the winter, <laughs> just pee all at once. Why do you have to go all around and pee on this tree and the fire hydrant and the mailbox? And that's because they're leaving uh, pheromone cues. Yeah. So when they come along, they can say, oh, that's, that's a female dog. And not only is it a female <laughs> dog, that's Fifi that lives three doors down. And not only that, but she's in heat. And so they get all <laughs> one, one sniff of the pee. So that's your, that's your. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yep. Okay. Yep. So okay. that's a very ancient scent or a sense. That's a very sense. ancient sense. Our olfactory sense. Mm -hmm. We're really bad at, we don't, we don't resonate that because we're, as you know, we're, we're not very good at smelling. So mm -hmm. one tongue flick, you know, snakes are always flicking their tongues. Uh, right. That's actually how they smell, and that's a little bit tricky because they have two nares or two nostrils like we do, and they can smell like we can smell, but the tongue, they don't have taste buds on their tongue. They, they kind of taste and smell at the same time. It's a little hard to describe because we can't do that, Yeah. but all the other critters do that, so horses, dogs, cats. Um, I always say that how does, to, to give you an idea about this, so at any rate, they, they stick their tongue out, they pick up chemical cues from the environment. In, the, in this example we're giving, it's that you know, they're pulling off, they're pulling off actually lipid cues off the back of the female fats. Mm -hmm. So you think, well, snakes aren't greasy or oily. We all know about that. You pick them up, they, they yeah. make lots of things, but they're not that. We're the same way. And I am going to answer your question, but it's going to be a roundabout one. We're the same way. Do you think we're oily or greasy? And you think, well, you know, when I was a teenager, I might have been a little bit greasy. Sure. And that's it. that plays into this too. So all terrestrial life, let me say that again, all terrestrial life, plants, mm -hmm. insects, vertebrates, if they live on land, they have to, uh, the big, the very serious thing they have to deal with is, is uh, water loss. Mm -hmm. Fancy word, transcutaneous water loss. We don't want to dry up. So what do yeah. we do? We coat ourselves with 
fats or greases to mm. keep the water in and keep it from evaporating out. Sure. Um, and then if I were Mother Nature, I would just cover us with Crisco or something, you know, whatever is the cheapest stuff to make. But, um, but it turns out that in every organism that's ever been looked at, including people, we're actually covered with an exquisitely um, diverse set of lipids, all mm -hmm. these different compounds. And it's like, well, that's weird. Why does that happen? And then to get back to your question, um, then I, I say, this is one to shock people too, maybe you could use this too, is our gonads are intimately associated with our skin and our skin lipids. You know, really? Like, hey, Bob, yeah, all right, you're gonna have to explain that one to me. Well, we all know, because we've gone through puberty, right? Uh -huh. you, yeah. When you go through puberty, your gonads, whether you're a male or a female, your testes or your ovaries grow, Mm -hmm. They start producing gametes, but the, at, at the same time, they're producing the sex steroid hormones, either estrogen or testosterone. Right. And then what happens is our secondary sex characters go up. Uh, but then what else do we get when we go through puberty? We get acne, right? Yeah. And what acne is, is overexpression of lipids, of fats in our skin. And it just happens that it's in our face, like your back. Uh, so, but, you know, it's not on the soles of your feet. It's not on your legs, things like that. So there's certain places where that, where that will occur. So yeah, our, our, our gonads are actually intimately associated with our skin lipids, like in our skin. Well, the snakes are no different. So almost certainly, it's hard to prove this, almost certainly the snakes evolved these lipids like all other terrestrial life to, to keep them from evap losing their water through evaporation. But then some clever snake years ago said, wow, when, when I smell this smell on that female, that means that she's producing oh. in reproductive condition. So yeah. I got a very clever advantage. I can smell that. And all of a sudden, that pheromone, that one component of the skin lipids became mm -hmm. a sex pheromone. Now, this is actually where the drama with snakes on a plane comes in. You see... And snakes on a plane, it basically, uh, the plot revolves around using pheromones to make multiple species of snakes act overly aggressive. And as Dr. Mason pointed out, well, there are only species specific, so there's no cross-species pheromones in snakes. And also, none that exists to make them overly aggressive. They're all mating related. So I think at this point, you can fully understand that um, life... Uh, finds a way. 100%. And this is just one of those beautiful, beautiful examples of just how bizarre and shocking and awe-inspiring in, in such an odd way natural selection and, and evolution can be. Sexual conflict, as I, I mean... The, the things that that come about as the result of odd behavior, this, this idea of sexual conflict that we are going to have to really deeply further explore in future episodes and that we're going to have to maybe come back to anytime we talk about any kind of animal. And we definitely are going to talk about reproductive stuff in our next episode. Well, not our next one. Well, a little bit, but, but our next next one about penguins. Um, the, the idea 
that life finds a way uh, uh, norm normally, normally, to, to maybe to back up for a moment. Normally, when we think or when we're taught about evolution and natural selection, it's all about for the good of the species, right? That, that individuals are, are almost just kind of willing to do what's needed for the good of the species in, in a lot of ways. And as we've learned looking at spiders and snakes, um, it's more like males adapt to benefit themselves and females adapt to benefit themselves, but somehow they both have to adapt to be able to work together. And those things happen to work in such a way that in most cases, at least, ends up benefiting the species. There's there's opportunity for choosiness. Choosiness is is an amazing phenomenon because it allows for choice. It, it allows for choice, which is just bizarre. The fact that and and how does how does that work? If you're a snake that is not necessarily the brightest bulb out there how when you have had coital relations with multiple males say ah yes i'm going to fertilize myself with that guy like how how does that even work there must be some kind of chemical marker or something but how does that work and i still don't get that part because i'm pretty I sure that part is something that no one understands yet it's just bizarre but i think what fascinates me about this whole thing is just like the chaos of it you know what i mean it's just it's just these these fleeting moments these fleeting seasons of the year where these things take place in in, in a lot of cases you know we're talking a, a very short period of time for snakes to be able to reproduce go eat have babies do what they need to do and all of these little tiny like decisions these little actions these little competitions between males between between uh, males and females are going on that just push the envelope into crazy more and more and more and more and more and more. And it's just like, there's, there's no end. There's no, there's no limit to how crazy, to how crazy life can really be. We, um, we, uh, moving into the future, um, that's kind of that's kind of our hope. That's kind of our that's kind of our goal. Um, it's a lot of a lot of scripting the f <laughs> scripting. Um, it's a lot of flipping the script, and uh, um, maybe taking animals that you thought you knew, whether positively or negatively. You know, animals that you thought you knew, and 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 animals that you love and cherish, and even animals that you hate and are disgusted by, animals that you didn't even know existed but but if we can tell the untold stories if we can flip the script if we can make you look at them and think a little bit different and just just leave with a little bit more wonder and appreciation and respect for life on this planet not for different specific values like economic values and things like that but or or for being cute you know but for because wow, it is life the the mechanisms of natural selection have brought this to us and it is ever changing and it exists but how freaking cool it is to be on a planet where all of these things exist and so do you 
You literally get to exist on the same planet as all of these other things. Now that, that's something to be grateful for. And now, it is time for Animal Sound of the Week. Last time on Animal Sound of the Week, guess what? It was a clue to a future episode. Penguin. Yep, that's right. That was a penguin sound. Was not the best penguin sound of the world, but it was a penguin sound. And not the next episode, but the episode after that is an episode all about penguins with special guest, the penguin lady, Diane DiNapoli. Really, really excited and for that episode to come out because, goodness, was it a lot of fun. This week's sound. Here we go. All right. <clears throat> sounds sounds like we're doing ASMR. <laughs> I, I really can't do it. I don't know how to do it. Please don't make that sound anymore, please. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> As always, you can submit your guest for Animal Sound of the Week on social media, directly on our website, or emailing us at like, you know, hey.thewildlife at gmail.com. That was hey.thewildlife at gmail.com. You can also just message me directly on Instagram at Devin the Nature Guy or reach out to us on Twitter. You know where to find us. You know where to find us. Also, I would definitely consider uh, joining our new book club. Yeah, that's right. We're pretty much wrapping up on this month's current book, The Truth About Animals by Lucy Cook, and it's been an absolutely enthralling adventure into the secret lives of wild lives. I love it. I, I'm just, I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed and it's my mission to get Lucy on the show. I'm aiming for October. Hope it works out. Of course, this is the part of the show where we're kind of ending things. We're wrapping things up. And uh, at this point, I would like to um, thank, again, Andrea Lloyd, Chris Trinkle, Bridget Fitzgerald, Matt Capel, and Megan Gariani, who are our member supporters. And as our member supporters are also wildlife ambassadors. That's right. If you become a member supporter, you are automatically put in our wildlife ambassador program, which donates 10% of your monthly contributions to a conservation or research program related to a wildlife of your choosing. Like the Sea Turtle Conservancy, Penguins International, or Giraffe Conservation Foundation, which is what our patrons give to. You can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash the wildlife. And when you do, get access to all kinds of bonus content, behind the scenes stuff, and, you know, merchy benefits. And, you know, community benefits. And just, you get to be a part of something bigger than yourself. It's super great. Now are you really going to notice a dollar, a dollar a month? Nah, yeah, I mean, it's nah. just like... Nah, man, that's, yeah, I that's mean, change, man. Come on, let's, let's a make some month, change with that change. Let's make change with your change. I love it. Let's do it. Let's make change with your pocket change. If you want to make a difference... Don't do just it. Just kidding, I'm not going to do it. I know, I know. I'm going to get sued for copyright. Let's not do that. Special thanks to Dr. Robert T. Mason, 
And you know what? While we're at it, special thanks to Sebastian Echevarri and Shakira Quinones because uh, uh, the three of them have just really made the last few weeks um, quite the adventure and quite memorable. And I enjoyed every every moment of our conversation. And really, you need to check out their social media and their websites because these three are some of the most amazing individuals that I've ever had the opportunity to speak to. And uh, I'm thankful for, for their time, for their wisdom, and uh, for them being them. You know what I mean? Yeah, they all got so. some pretty amazing stuff going on for anyone to go check out. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>